Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning we're going to visit Jesus' teaching on how we're to relate uh, and act uh, upon our enemies. Our enemies, all right? And we're going to have communion at the end of this, so maybe you can be processing whether you're at home or here. Um, if you have any enemies. And what are our enemies? We'll talk about that. Uh, so if you're at home, it would be good if you could g- gather some communion elements and join us in the celebration of Eucharist as a culmination uh, to this message. And uh, I've entitled the message, uh, An Appetite for the Impossible, with like a question mark at the end of impossible. Uh, and I, I purposely placed the question mark at the end of this little curious title, because most of the world believes that the manner in which Jesus instructs us to relate to our enemies is a practical impossibility. Really, probably most of us in this room. All right? And, and how many, you know, and it's for this reason that humanity almost becomes glib about, about loving your enemies, because what else can you do, huh? Uh, Responding to hatred, somebody who hates you with real love, really? Or allowing others to maybe even take advantage of you, really? Praying for those who would like to see you destroyed, really? How many times in the church have I heard someone say something like, loving your enemies may be okay for Jesus or for Leo Tolstoy or for uh, Gandhi or, or for Martin Luther King, uh, but I'm not allowed, I'm not about to lie down and become somebody's doormat. Have you heard something like that? You know, if any of you feel called to pastoral ministry, you know, you're going to become a professional doormat, let me tell you. <laughs> Interestingly, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is one which the world seems to be really aware of. You hear, love, love, love your enemies in lots of places, okay? Uh, but it's also the place in the Sermon on the Mount that the world is the most incredulous about. And so we hear all kinds of like little glib comments and caveats uh, all all the time. It's part of our culture. Here are just a few interesting comments. Oscar Wilde said, always forgive your enemies because nothing annoys them more. (laughs) Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, in in a very Nietzsche-esque way, for those of you who studied Nietzsche in high school or college, says, a man must be able not only to love his enemies, but he also needs to hate his friends. Uh, is interesting. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte said, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a really big mistake. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite. Frank Sinatra said, alcohol may be man's worst enemy, but then again, the Bible says, love your enemies. You know? <laughs> And then Eminem says, well, if you have enemies, that's a good thing because at least it means you stand for something. Huh? And so, you know, statements like this, I think the reason, I mean, if you, if, you, if you do a quote search on Google for all these quotes regarding loving your enemies, I mean, there's just pages and pages of them. And most of them don't take seriously what Jesus says. In other words, there are these glib comments that give us some wiggle room so that we don't have to do what Jesus says is very serious 
in terms of having to, how, having to love one another. So the truth is, even most Christians don't know what to do or how to live with what Jesus has to say here. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going we're to pick this apart a little bit. Uh, we'll begin in verse 38. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this. He says, You've heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Wow. So Jesus cites the Old Testament principle of retaliation in kind or in degree, which is found a number of places in the Torah and the law. But it's also something that's still alive and well in our own judicial system. Uh, you realize in litigation, suits and countersuits are based upon equal retaliation, if you will. But Jesus says, don't even resist an evil one. The word resist in Greek is a first century legal word. It, it, it literally means don't resist them by legal means. Don't countersue. And, and, but there's a spirit, I mean, there's a spirit of, of, of what he's saying there in terms of how we look for retaliation. And then Jesus turns to the whole matter of honor here. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. See, to, to, to slap someone on the cheek in the New Testament world was to perform a public dishonor that demanded a response. And the custom worked its way into the dueling tradition. You've seen movies where somebody's challenging someone else to a duel and they take their gloves and they slap them on the right cheek and then they slap them on the left cheek and, you know, anybody see Hamilton? You know, <laughs> um, so if, then he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic well, then give him your cloak as well. Go, go the other mile. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give, give to the one who begs from you. And don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. This kind of, this kind of radical selflessness must have astounded Jesus' listeners, both in the Hebrew world, and because he's, he's, he's taking the law to a different fulfillment than anyone would have ever imagined, but also, really, the Roman world most brutal world that to, to that point in the history of humankind. And then in verse 43 says, well, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and then pray for those who persecute you. The most important element of this whole teaching, the most important uh, 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 the most important element to make it even possible to perform is the idea of praying for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, the word for love here is agape, and Probably some, most of you have heard that word somewhere. There's so many churches named agape. It's a word for love unique to the New Testament. Nowhere in the ancient world is this, is this word hardly ever found. Uh, the, the word that's usually used is eros, from which we get the word erotic, um, or filio, which, from which we get the word uh, Philadelphia. Uh, uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's, this is a very different word. And so he says so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, God does this kind of love. We're imitating God when we love like this. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, and what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In this context, it means not only do the unbelievers do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about this verse, what perfection is? You can go back to the message that's online called Good Persons. If you're at home, you can do that and we can, we can unpack what it means to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're not going to do that this morning. It's there if you want to get to it. Goodfellas is the name of that message. So the world makes all these glib uh, comments about loving your enemies to give us wiggle room, see how, how we can get out of it. By the way, it occurred to me while I, I was writing this message for most of the Sermon on the Mount, it's so radical that your, your first instinct when you read the words of Jesus is to say, how can I wiggle out of this? <laughs> right? You know, so, so that's, this is true right here more than ever. So I think it's firstly important to understand from the perspective of the, the scriptures just who or what an enemy is. Have you ever thought about that? Who or what is my enemy? Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses here for enemy comes from a root which means to hate or to seek someone's uh, destruction. Okay, that's what enemy means literally. Out, even outside of the Bible, that, that root word for enemy that Jesus is using means one who hates. Hatred is a powerful emotion. All right. So biblically then, an enemy is someone who seeks and takes pleasure in my harm, or even my destruction, right? But conversely, when I secretly take pleasure in someone else's harm or someone else's misfortune, it's called schadenfreude is a fancy name for that. You know what? I am beginning a path of hatred myself. Huh? All right. So the word enemy excludes people who've harmed me unintentionally or in harming me felt as if they were, they were doing uh, what they were doing to me was for my own good, however misguided what they were doing was. And I can enumerate over the past 40 years. I, I, I'm sure most of you have had something similar like this where somebody comes up to you and says, brother, I'm going to say something and I want you to know I'm saying it in love. Well, when they say that, I mean, get out the shield, right? <laughs> Am I right? You know, because you know what's coming. Okay? Usually, you know, it's some kind of broadsided, preposterous comment, and you just have to let it go and forgive them. And, you know, I, the times that I, as a pastor, the number of times where preceded by the, by, by the phrase, I want to tell you this in love, the number of, I think there's been five times of the course of my, my uh, career where somebody in love told me I was the spirit of the Antichrist. <laughs> you know? Somebody did publicly on the radio, you know. <laughs> oh, jeez. See, these people, but watch this. These people are not my enemies. Huh? And I don't receive them as such. And by the way, that, that gives you a lot of latitude and a lot of freedom. Uh, they're just ignorant. <laughs> they have no knowledge of how to assert themselves in a, in a really loving and godly way. Uh, Enemies are much more serious. And I'm very concerned about who is my enemy, but I'm also very concerned about making myself someone else's enemy. All right? Okay? Um, I had a supervisor in a job 
wow, right, right when I got out of college. And, and he was my immediate supervisor. I was in a little cubicle office with him. And uh, uh, I mean, he's gone to be with the Lord for decades. And so it's, it's safe to talk about him. Oh, I would never mention the name, but, but he hated me. And he was bigoted. He was racist. And he was jealous of me because he found out I had a college degree and he didn't have one. And, and uh, I just, in my, all my years, I'd never met anybody quite that nasty. And it seemed like he got up every day thinking of a way to destroy a little bit of me. I never experienced that kind of onslaught. And, I, you know, so I'm thinking, what am I going to do about this? Because, you know, if you go over his head, it's, it, you know, that has all kinds of ramifications. Because you're in this, this, this cubicle with this guy, you know, every day of the week. But more than that, he's your supervisor. More than that, you're in there, and he's a chain smoker. And in those days, you could smoke on the job. And so I... I, you know, I'm still swimming in secondary smoke, all right? <laughs> and so I thought, Trish and I were praying about it. You remember this, Trish? And, and, and we were praying about it, and I thought, I got to transfer out of this job. I got to do something to get out of this place. And, uh, uh, and the Lord spoke when we were praying. The Lord spoke very clearly. God said this. He said, stay under my government. Stay under the authority I've put over you. This is the guy that God's saying stay under. And then God said this and begin to pray for him. And man, we went to prayer. It wasn't a day went by that I didn't pray for him. And, you know, where I, where I wish I could tell you now he's a saint, you know, preaching the gospel in the Congo. That's not the case. <laughs> he's going to be with the Lord. Uh, but I, he did go to be with the Lord. He ended up coming to a conversion experience. But more than that, you know, now this is going to sound terrible. He went through it. See, how many of you know sometimes people don't come to God if they're riding the gravy train? Yeah? And so when we began to pray, God took him through a series of events that challenged everything in his life. And I never said a word. I couldn't. Never said a word. But I believe that consequent to staying under that man's authority, he and possibly other members of his family, as I speak today, while worshiping Jesus Christ, the sovereign king. Are you there? So there's a little bit of crucifixion that has to go, uh, has to take place through these things. Jesus calls the devil our enemy, right? Because the devil seeks to rob and destroy every one of us. And I would argue that when human animosity, when a human enemy uh, comes toward us and it reaches a level of malice or maliciousness, all right, the individual who's leveling malice toward us is being used by our enemy, the devil. All right. All right, so then there's a principle here. Some enemies are spiritual and some enemies are physical, and the two are yoked together. When I was sitting in that office, I was in warfare. Huh? Are you, are you, are you with me on this? So this principle's going to become, you got to get this. Some enemies are spiritual and some physical, but the two are yoked together. This is really important to being able to love your enemies. I'll tell you why. This principle is critical if we're going to attempt the impossibility of Jesus' instruction here. Uh, amidst all of the political turmoil right now going on regarding race and equality, here's something really interesting. 
Few people seem to ask the question, how did the clear teaching, the clear teaching of the greatest seekers of racial justice in the last century become perverted into raw violence? All right, what am I talking about? I'm not asking where the violence comes from. We know where it comes from, all right? But I'm talking, I'm asking about the teachings of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, who drew their inspiration regarding activism, political activism, from the words of Jesus and the very teachings that we're talking about this morning. They quoted them constantly. And without getting into historical caricatures and persona, I want to point out that both Mandela and Martin Luther King understood something about the nature of power, the true nature of power, and what Jesus' words mean here. And without this realization, uh, Jesus' words are in fact impossible. They're impossible to live out. So in commenting on this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Luther King said this. I'm just picking this one quote, but it's, it's, it's so true. It's this, we must love our enemies because love carries within it a redemptive power. Something powerful happens when we love our enemies. When, when he was saying, what he was saying there is that there is this force of love. It's a supernatural dimension okay, to Christians. It's agape love. Love carries a force. It, it focuses and releases spiritual power in the ones that we're praying for. This is why Jesus immediately adds the dimension, pray for them. This kind of love can't get, a, can't, you can't get it apart from prayer. So this message isn't merely about morality. It's about, it's not just about being kind and that's important or nice and that's important or passive and that's important or even forgiving, uh, which is the way we ought to, to be as believers, but it's about warfare. You hear me? It's about warfare. Loving your enemy is not a mere moral commandment. It is spiritual warfare. So I wish I could tell you that while I was sitting under this guy for a year, and he was kind of taking me apart emotionally, that I felt really good about it. And every day, a new rising affection came up in me. But when I prayed for him, I began to gain the mind of God about what created Frankenstein in the first place. Huh? <laughs> so if I removed the dimension of spiritual warfare from my attempts to love an enemy, I'm forever going to find it impossible. But even more than that, there's an additional jeopardy in attempting or wishing to destroy our enemies. Uh, I'm reading this, I'm reading a number of books right now. I'm kind of fascinated in the, the interplay of the Allies, America, Britain, France, so forth, with Germany and Japan right after World War II. So I'm reading a number of books on the Allied insistence for unconditional surrender of Germany an unconditional surrender of Japan during World War II and the, the monumental decision to drop the atom bomb on Japan. Uh, if you want to look at it, there's one good book I recommend because it's readable for everyone. It's called 1945 by Chris Wallace. And it's about three years old. There's a really good, uh, a really good study on this whole thing. But it's both fascinating to me. I mean, when I look back at the carnage perpetrated on the world by the Japanese Empire and the Nazi uh, regime. It's counterintuitive, it's fascinating and thoroughly Judeo-Christian that the Western Allies 
uh, after the surrender of Germany and Japan both, never sought to enslave our enemies nor destroy those nations. Isn't that amazing? Uh, although if the tables had been turned and they won, we would surely have been enslaved and destroyed by them. Huh? That's, it's, see, Judeo-Christianity in a culture, everybody's talking, America, Christian nation. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I've preached on that, on that topic so many times here. W whatever else you believe about the founding fathers or whatever else you believe about, Judeo-Christian ethics and morality is rooted in the birth of the nation because it couldn't be otherwise. Uh, are you there? And it proved itself in World War II. So, so if the tables were turned and Germany and Japan had won, they surely would have enslaved us, destroyed us, and quite barbarically if, if their, 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 their wartime behavior was any indication or what they did to other nations. So what we did is we sought to restore them. And now they're two, two of the most powerful nations in the world right now, right? We sought to restore them as people and restore them we did. So there's a reason for that, and, and it's, in, it's in the literature and the thinking of the period with men like Roosevelt and Churchill and Truman, but there's a principle. This is what these guys were thinking. This is why I did the reading that I did. This is what these guys are thinking, but it applies to us right here, or if you're watching online, it applies to us right now, and it's, it's a huge principle. It's this. In trying to destroy evil by aggression, we bear the jeopardy of becoming the very evil we seek to destroy. Huh? This, you know, we have two campuses, one's in Mukunji and one's here. Okay. Uh, both of the, the ge geographies in which those campuses sit were founded, you know, were, were developed and, and uh, pioneered by the Moravians. Moravians uh, grew out of a, a, a movement called the Unitas Fratrem uh, in Germany around the turn of the 18th century, from, from the, uh, I'm sorry, the 16th into the 17th century. And they were the refugees from a, a series of religious wars called the Thirty Years' War, which were religious wars that devastated Central Europe. I never realized six million died Many more millions were displaced. It was terrible. They were the refugees from this. And so when they began to form their community, they became pacifists on the basis of these scriptures. You there. And so the Moravians who came and settled Bethlehem and settled Makanji, uh, which was Emmaus at the time, uh, were pacifists. Okay. Then in the midst of uh, the decades when they were working with the, 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 the Amerindians, the indigenous peoples, Lenny Lenape and the Iroquois, uh, there was a huge massacre up in the area around Lehighton called Nadnutten. And, and uh, a, 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 a whole number of Moravians were killed, uh, women, men, women, children. Some escaped, some came back to bed. And, and this was during the French and Indian War, and the whole of, of this area was, was uh, a frontier that was under assault between the French and the Indians and, and the, the landed immigrants here. So the Moravians went to prayer. And the, they, they came up with a doctrine from here, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of this, it was interesting, where they would arm themselves in order to defend themselves, but they would never arm themselves in order to act aggressively toward another. You follow that? 
that worked because it forestalled uh, the, the movement of, of uh, the Amerindians down the East Coast. Okay. Then, suddenly, uh, and they were, by the way, they were neutral during the American uh, Revolutionary War. They, they tended both uh, British and American soldiers. They were both British and American soldiers who were cared for right here in Bethlehem. And then, uh, in about uh, 1812, uh, both in North Carolina and here, uh, a change began to take place. And by 1860, when the Civil War took place, they decided that they could, in fact, take arms for a just cause. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying these are the way things go. Are you, are you there? By 1860, when the Civil War hits, okay, well, suddenly you've got Moravians in North Carolina and Moravians in Pennsylvania, and they're in two different camps ideologically during the Civil War. They never had slaves. They, they, uh, slavery was not the issue. States' rights were the issue. Okay? So suddenly they've moved from being completely pacifistic to taking arms up against one another on the basis of ideology. Huh? I see, it's really interesting how these things can twist and turn because you know who ultimately is the one who wants to destroy? The devil. So there's a league that kind of goes on here. So I want to hasten to say, uh, by the way, isn't it interesting that we sought to restore Japan and Germany, but Stalin and the Marxists did not? Huh? And we saw what happened. Well, those of us who are old enough knows what Eastern Europe looked like after World War II. They were enslaved. All right. So, so then, what's the answer? Like, what, where am I going with this? Are, are we merely to be passive sheep waiting for the slaughter? Is that it? Or, or do we ever get to assert ourselves or protect ourselves? And the answer, of course, isn't yes or, yes or no. You know what the answer is? It's love. The issue becomes how, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, in any kind of an issue, how can I love someone who is out to do me in? How can I love in such a way that I don't become out to do somebody else in? Huh? And so, again, the love being described here can't be accomplished apart from prayer. It is impossible. And so we're to have an appetite for impossibility. I want to, be, I want to love impossibly and so should all of us. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember, I said that agape love was the affection uh, the, 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 the love that, that was being described here by Jesus. Agape love is not necessarily affection. All right? You can love someone and not have affection for them, although I would argue that ultimately agape love has to lead to affection. All right? And again, these are the words of Martin Luther King, and he says this, agape does not begin by discriminating between a worthy or an unworthy person or any qualities that people possess. It begins by loving others for their own sakes. Wow, what words. It is, it is an entirely neighbor-regarding concern for others kind of love, which discovers the neighbor in every man or woman it meets. Therefore, agape makes no distinction between friend and enemy. It is directed toward both. If one loves an individual merely on account of his friendliness, he loves him for the sake 
of the benefits to be gained from that friendship. And he goes on to say, rather than for the friend's own sake. Consequently, the best way to assure oneself that my love is disinterested is to have love for my enemy neighbor from whom I can expect no good in return, but only hostility and persecution. And if we do that and we pray, we marshal a spiritual warfare for that individual which is unmistakably redemptive. Uh, works all different kinds of ways, but it works. Are, are, you, are you with me on this? This is a difficult teaching, yeah? But these are the words of Jesus, and he's pretty serious about it because he lived it on the cross. Huh? All right? I mean, Jesus hung on the cross and looked down on the Roman soldiers who were, who were, who were killing him, right? Hung on the cross, looked down at the Sadducees and Pharisees, and was not praying, Father, defund the police. <laughs> Are you there? You know? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what happens? Roman centurion, shock trooper, seeing every kind of carnage that you could possibly see in that world, looks up at him and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And I don't know about you, but in my Bible, that confession takes you somewhere. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So here's a principle then. Passivity is only effective when it's aggressive love. Um, gosh, I got to tell you one last story. It's okay, just do, we'll do one more story. Ilya Bonsiev is a, an apostle, church planter. He's, his wife is from Bethlehem, and he's preached here a couple times, and he's just a great guy. He, he's planted churches in Russia. Uh, a, lot, a lot of you know him. Um, when he uh, was about, he was living in Novokuznetsk, which is in Siberia, and, and, and his parents were exiled there because they were Baptists. They were Christians. Stalin had them put there. And he grew up there. And when he was uh, 18, he was due to go in to the, uh, to the Russian uh, armed services, to the Soviet armed services. And he didn't mind going in to the armed services on pacifistic grounds. He... he, he what, what he couldn't do is he felt as if he could not swear an oath of allegiance to the Communist Party. That was his problem, and he refused to do it. Well, when that happens, you get put into a, another company, and you can end up in the gulag, and, in, in, in forced labor. You, and, and even there, if that's the reason that you're there, your odds of making it through alive are slim to none. So he went to trial... And the colonel who was uh, going to prosecute him uh, interviewed him and interviewed him. And, and this colonel was his enemy. And so Ilya went to prayer. His family went to prayer. And over the course of the interviews and the arranging of his defense, the colonel suddenly discovered that this, this young man was a fine young man. And he did not want to see him uh, just destroyed. So he moved from wanting to destroy him to to wanting to see him avoid being destroyed. And so he arranged it, and I'm not quite sure of how he did it, but it was probably uh, within the intrigues of the Soviet government at the time. To, to, he, he arranged it so that, that Ilya was put, he was put in, in, a, in a, a labor camp, but the labor camp was one that he felt he could survive through, and Ilya went in for two years, came out. Ilya then and his family were deported uh, to the United to Canada, 
And during that time, he, he, he was in Canada. As soon as he was married, he went back to begin to plant churches in his hometown. 20 years later, he's walking into a restaurant and he sees the colonel, okay, who was going to be his prosecutor. And he walks over and says, do you remember me? And the colonel says, I, I don't know who you are. And he tells them. And so they begin to have a conversation. He's already mustered out. He's retired from the Soviet army. And he musters out, he had mustered out, and he sits down with Ilya, and Ilya begins a conversation with him and leads him to Jesus Christ. True story. Not only that, the guy becomes a member of his church. <laughs> and last I heard, he was older, but he and his wife and then his kids and grandkids were now had now become either Christians or had heard the gospel consequent to it. And it all came from praying for someone who sought to destroy him. And we, I have tons of stories like that. It's just, it's just good. So I want to close with these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For those of you who don't know who Bonhoeffer was, he was a, a Christian pastor during, in Nazi Germany who, who, who preached a lot on this particular verse. He was killed for what he believed by Hitler. Matter of fact, Hitler hated him so much, Hitler ordered him to be hung, and when he ordered for him to be hung, he, he ordered the Gestapo to film the hanging so that Hitler could see, could see it again and again and again. That's, that's hatred. Huh? Okay, this is what Bonhoeffer said. He said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of enemies. And at the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers, and for, this, and for this cause he had come to bring peace to those very enemies, the enemies of God. So, he says, we Christians too belong not in seclusion. We don't belong in a cloistered life. We, we, we belong in the thick of our foes. There is a commission in this work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of our enemies. And he who will not suffer this doesn't want to become a believer in the kingdom of God who wants to be merely among friends and sit among the roses and lilies. Because not it's with the bad people that the devout are supposed to live. That's kind of an amazing thought, isn't it? And it's what Jesus modeled. Huh? It's what Jesus modeled. Okay. We all have um, a spiritual enemy. Yeah? Some of us have physical enemies. Our spiritual enemies need no reason to hate us. They hate us because God loves us, right? But our physical enemies can be turned by love. It's interesting. During this, uh, I'm going long, I know. So there was a pile of prophets who, who prophesied that Trump was going to win the election. And, and, and then, uh, and I know, people are saying, well, he didn't really win. He won, blah, 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 blah. all that stuff. All right, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is I just saw some, some writing from some prophetic people uh, yesterday that just distressed me, alarmed me, because it was like they were cursing. They were, you know, uh, in, in a cloaked religious way. And then Chris Valentin, anybody read any of Chris Valentin's stuff and hear him prophesy? He's a prophet from out in Redding, California, at Bethel. And he woke up yesterday morning and was incensed because he had prophesied that Trump would be the 
64th president or whatever it is of the U.S. Uh, what is it? What number is it? 45? Yeah. That, that shows you my history. Okay, so 45. He prophesied that Trump, Trump was going to be the 45th president, and he woke up, and Biden was. Yeah. And he said he got out of bed, and he said, and the Holy Spirit came on him and said, whatever you do, soak yourself in humility. Can I say that again? Whatever you do, soak yourself in humility. And uh, he got up before the prophetic world and said, oh, okay, maybe I missed it. If I did, I'm sorry. But here's a word to the body of Christ. He said, we need to, at this time, be humble and we need to love. All right. That's why we're closing with communion today. Huh? Yeah. Um. Did everybody get their communion packets? You have your communion at home, right? Okay. What I'd like us to do, just take one minute. And I want us to ask the Lord, do we have an enemy other than the devil? I mean, do we have anybody in our lives that would be take pleasure in seeing harm come to us. Or I want us to ask the Lord, is there anybody we would take pleasure in seeing harm come to? Okay, that's a big thing. Okay, we're going to take a minute and let the Holy Spirit just fall. And then we're going to pray for those people and pray for ourselves. Then we're going to take Eucharist. Okay. Okay, Father, in the name of Jesus, for those at home, those here, we pray um, that your Holy Spirit would come. The finger of God. Lord, we don't want to figure this out. We don't want to do a roll call of offenses or anything like that. But Lord, if, if there's anyone, Lord, that, that you know who would take pleasure in our harm, we would like you to point that out right now. Lord, if there's anyone or any group of people who we would take pleasure in their harm. We would like you to point that out. Would you poke your finger right into our hearts and show us that? Because we want to pray for them and bring redemption to them. Pray for ourselves and bring redemption to ourselves. So let's take one minute of silence and ask God to point out our fault line in Jesus' name.
Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Eucharist means thanksgiving. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, everybody left him except for John and the women. He took the bread and broke it and said, this bread is my body broken for you. You can take the bread from your little whatever they are. Take the wafer. Lord Jesus, with your broken body that we're about to take, we, we pray for those who hate us. Lord, redeem them. Whatever is producing that, that hatred, we break the yoke of Satan over that malice that they hold toward us in the name of Jesus. We break the yoke in the name of Jesus. And that spirit, we take your broken body together. Amen. Taking the cup, he said, this cup is the cup of my blood shed for the remission of your sin. It's the blood of the new covenant. Lord, if there's anything in us that seeks the harm of another, when we've been bought with this shed blood, we repent. We break the power of Satan in the name of Jesus. And we drink this cup. I just speak a word of freedom in the name of Jesus. A word of freedom in the name of Jesus. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610 816 6062.